Hello, my name is Patricia Rosvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore their relation, interest and urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can now support my platform by contributing to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. Today I'm honored to welcome Krasimira Butseva, a Bulgarian artist and photographer currently based in the UK. Krasimira is an associate lecturer on the BA photography course at London College of Communication, University of the Arts London, as well as a co-editor of EEP Berlin, a platform for contemporary photography from Eastern Europe, as well as a co-founder of Revolve Collective, exploring alternative methods for teaching and creating photography. Her practice circulates around the topics of Eastern European trauma, history and memory through photography, moving image and writing. Please welcome Krasimira Butseva. Welcome Krasimira uh, to Kitchen Conversations. I'm very happy uh, we met uh, online, of course, not in real life. I actually was hoping you uh, live in Berlin because uh, I know you collaborate uh, or like uh, you you write for the EEP Berlin and you were also exhibiting your works here. So I was like, okay, I moved to Berlin. Hopefully I can meet some nice people. But then turned out uh, you actually live in the UK. But anyway, super nice that we can uh, record uh, this episode together. Your practice is for quite some years now, very specifically directed into um, yeah, unraveling uh, the trauma, the memory, the history of state socialist Bulgaria or like Eastern Europe, but spe- specifically Bulgaria. So I'm just curious how it all started. Uh, thanks uh, first for the invitation. I'm really pleased to uh, be here, wherever here is, in the digital with you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think my practice started back in my BA degree. Uh, I didn't actually understood back then what I was going to deal with or, or how it all began. But uh, it all started from actually migrating to the UK and spending some time away from home and being able to, in a way, gain an outsider perspective on, on Bulgaria and start to see all of the things that were normalized within the country or within the stories I was told, which weren't actually so normal. Um, I think the first, uh, like, I think that's a really funny story of how when I was like in my second year of my BA and I had like friends who were like from all around the world, uh, we were sitting, I don't know, having a coffee and I shared like how my mom's favorite fruits were bananas because they only existed during New Year's. And the people around me cracked up, started laughing. They thought that I'm just like saying a joke. And then in my eyes, like for the first time, I experienced this 
you know, difference between East, West and how, like, for me, this is such a boring, normal story, uh, which every parent could say to their child uh, if they're based in the East. Uh, but for all of these people, that was kind of absurd because, you know, you'll go to the shop here and it, in, the, in the East as well, and you'll see, like, hundreds of bananas on a stand. Uh, so I think that was, like, the first time it hit me that, there are so many things I grew up with which weren't actually normal. Like they were just made a default or like normalized somehow. Um, later on, I, I started to make some work about these memories and I started to like delve somehow within this history or like memories of my parents and things I haven't experienced. And um, in the summer of my graduation from my BA, I was uh, like, I applied for an MA again in photography and I didn't have like a clear idea of what I wanted to do. I had like probably multiple different like interests. So I was on Facebook and I was just scrolling uh, on my wall and I happened to see like a video of uh, a survivor from a forced labor camp who was uh, standing in a derailed building and sh sharing his memories, sharing the trauma he's experienced. It was probably a five minute long video which gave a very brief description of the past but when I watched it, I, I, was, I was extremely shocked because I'd never even heard of these camps. I didn't actually believe straight away that this was a widespread situation. It sounded to me as if there were like 100 people or, you know, a very small amount of people who ended up in these places. Uh, so I just did a quick Google search and started reading because I wanted to learn more. Um, and I think that that was actually the beginning of what I'm still doing uh, five years after, uh, because I think there's so much to read and to piece together that uh, this Google search, maybe it's still continuing somehow. Uh, so it all started from this uh, like random situation, which then escalated to me trying to find the locations of the camps first on Google Maps because I was in the UK. Um, and then reaching out to historians or people or like cities and uh, finding a way to visit these places and to understand what actually happened there. Uh, so I went uh, maybe two, three months after this case, I went to one of the camps, uh, Bellene. Then I went to Lovech um, and uh, I, I continued moving to different places, meeting with, with more people, but working a bit as an outsider because I didn't actually come from a family of survivors. No one from like my extended family has been uh, like arrested or somehow incriminated uh, by the system because of their actions. Um, so I, I didn't actually have any like personal connection to that. Uh, in the same time, I haven't heard about this in school. No one taught me about this in history class. There were no museums, galleries or events I ever attended while studying in Bulgaria that mentioned this kind of a situation ever happening. Uh, so I didn't have any prior knowledge uh, to any any of the things I was about to uncover when I started. Can we like um, just set a time frame of when uh, these camps were actually um, active? Because like before I started uh, the talk with you, I researched a bit about uh, the history of gulags uh, or gulag. I don't know if you can make a plural out of it. But anyway, like what's, what I found out is that like kind of after the death of Stalin, so like 50, after 53, like the, the camps kind of disappeared. But I'm not sure that was the case in other places outside of, let's say, the, the Soviet uh, Union. And yeah, I'm curious about Bulgaria. Um, so basically the, uh, the 
first uh, camp, which was uh, opened, uh, opened in 1949, and the final closure of the camps, which uh, sometimes existed for several years, they would be closed, then they would exist again and reopen. Uh, so actually, they closed in 1987, which was just two years before the fall of the um, Berlin Wall. Uh, yes, uh, when Stalin died, there was uh, kind of a new law of, uh, like, you know, for the closure of all camps in all Soviet republics uh, or satellite republics. So in Bulgaria, the longest enduring camp, which was Belene, actually closed then, um, was part close uh, because of the following of this law. But actually, the camps continued to exist in Bulgaria. It was more like a decision from the government, the Bulgarian government, rather than a decision given uh, from, you know, uh, the Soviet Union, which was what most of the decisions were, uh, where, where they were coming from. So in 1959, another camp opened, which, because it was outside of this framework of law, and also because it was not very much documented, like there isn't almost any archival documents existing about the camp at all. Uh, so it opened in 1959 and it lasted for three years with its closure in 62. It closed only because of the information of what was happening in the camp being widespread, becoming like known by the party members or like citizens of Bulgaria. Uh, because there are the theories that this camp was not like the, the party didn't even knew about the camp, like, or what was actually taking place in the camp extensively, which could be debated because that's, you know, uh, not like you can't really figure out whether that's true or not. Uh, but because of this, this camp, which existed out, outside of like the, the law somehow, um, just because of this reason, this camp was actually the most violent. Uh, in the other camps, although there were beatings and violence, which were on daily basis, um, there was some kind of, um, you know, structure of the daily life or uh, like experiences of people in some way. Of course, there was immense violence, but in, in Lovichin particularly, violence was a part of the administrative system of the camp. So the survivors who were sent there uh, were often sent without any, uh, as usual, most of the times in other camps as well, there won't be any documentation of their internments or them being released if they happen to be lucky to be released. But with this particular camp, it's even less the documentation or proof that people were sent. And there as well, people would be sent for um, even more insignificant reasons, which wouldn't even be related to somehow politically, you know, concerned movements or opposition to the rules in some way by supporting a past party from the king's government or, you know, being a farmer and not wanting to give your lands to the nationalization. Um, so here, there were a lot of young people sent to this camp as well. And um, from the accounts of survivors, I've spoken to one survivor from this camp and interviewed him. Uh, and I've listened to an interview with uh, others who also shared their memories. They describe very graphic and brutal treatments. And it's um, in their accounts, uh, what comes is that there was at least um, like two to 10 people uh, that were deceased daily in the camp. Um, and there is actually no way to find the actual number of people who were interned or who actually died. Uh, if you look at the archives, there are dead certificates of only 151 people that died, which is absolutely not true. Um, but the, the labor was brutal. They were working a quarry 
without any kind of tools or equipment. They would be interned with the clothes that they would be arrested. So if you're interned in your summer clothes, you would work with the same clothes during winter when it would get to minus 20 degrees. Uh, there was no uh, medis like medical help on site or medical help in general. There was the, the food was super scarce and it was almost like the, the violence was somehow you know, a part of, of the way that people are treated without them actually, uh, you know, doing something wrong. Not that you can, that's actually an appropriate phrase, but for example, they weren't punished because they wouldn't do their daily uh, rota, which was impossible anyways, but they would be just punished so that the others know, you know, that they're, uh, that, th that something could always happen to them or that uh, they are treated like absolute, you know, in inhumane, absolutely. Here, before we continue, I wanted to give a trigger warning. Krasimira shared a very graphic story of violence happening in one of the camps. So if you're not comfortable with hearing it, please uh, skip around four minutes and continue from there. Survivor I've interviewed, for example, describes how because it was a quarry um, and they had to like, you know, destroy the rock formations in order to actually break the rocks to rubble or to choke or to stones, um, they would normally go and put like dynamite in the, like the, the different like layers of the rocks so that they blow up and then they can work with them and like break them with a stone crusher and so on. So in his uh, recollection, which I've recorded, he describes how uh, one day uh, they were all put like in a line as it would happen normally in the beginning of the day. And they, would, uh, they, was, uh, they were asked uh, who would like to have a cigarette. So he wanted really to go and get to have a cigarette. But a friend of his in the camp uh, pulled him back and told him to just stay and stay quiet. This was probably within the first week of his internment. So he wasn't really aware of what some things could mean. Mm. So the people who volunteered to get a cigarette were the ones that were about to go and light the dynamite. The dynamite was put beforehand in the rocks, and because it was on three different layers, the people would ascend to the rock formations, and they would uh, have a cigarette, and then they would light uh, the, the, you know, the dynamite with the cigarette. But because uh, of the different layers and levels of this, uh, and because the dynamite was like quite you know, uh, fast to blow up, uh, when the people would start to ascend down in order to go back to the rota of the other people, the rocks would start blowing up in the air. Uh, so the people would be actually killed by this, this explosion. Uh, and he describes graphically how he would see, you know, the bodies in the air uh, and hands still moving and, and they're like literally the, the body of the person becoming into parts. And then uh, the guard of the camp after this would happen, which the guard wouldn't actually react to this because that would be the normality for him. He would just uh, order to the other inmates in the camp to go and pick up the parts of the people and load them into uh, either sacks or into like a, a nearby car, which would normally be used uh, every week to transport the bodies of the inmates that deceased in the camp to the island where another camp was. So that would be like about the roughly guess at like a two, three hour journey or more with these bodies to a distant uh, island, which is between Bulgaria and Romania, uh, called uh, Stureza. So this island was actually used, I think, uh, for like the inmates to work, but it was never made into like um, a camp as the uh, island Persin was, where, I, where Camp Belen was uh, located. 
So it like there are so many accounts of this island being used as a mass grave and bodies being buried there by inmates sometimes, or sometimes, you know, buried very in shallow graves next to the water um, so that they would actually get rid of the bodies, whether they would be uh, people who are just cute or who died because of the exposure to weather conditions or to the scarcity of food, or they would be dead because of such situations as I just described. They would be all be, they all would be buried there so that they um, there won't be any trace or evidence of them being in a camp, them existing, or you know uh, them actually uh, going through something organized by the state if their relatives are searched. Uh, because I think that there were some cases when. Uh, like in the beginning of the Gulag camps, uh, the relatives would receive uh, a note uh, and um, some kind of a parcel with the belongings of their relatives. And that's how they would learn that their relative has died. At uh, these years, in the uh, end of the 50s, 60s, that was no longer the case. Uh, the government wouldn't even, you know, um, confirm of this person's internment at all. Mm. And... How did it actually feel for you to to go to the areas where the camps were? Because yeah, I'm I'm curious if there is still some infrastructure being there. So, like I remember when I went to visit uh, Auschwitz uh, from the Second World War. That's a camp uh, yeah, in Krakow uh, in Poland, and I really got sick after I was there. Like the two days, like I really couldn't like take it. It really impacted me a lot, but also like there, the whole infrastructure is still there. I mean, it's a museum, which is also quite debatable, like to visit this place. And yeah, it was such a weird experience. So I'm curious how it was for you and how do these places look today? I think that, um, for example, on some of the camps, there is still some uh, kind of a relics or ruins of something that was there. For example, on island Persin, where Camp Belena was, there are some of the buildings preserved of one of the sites because the island is quite big. So there were deep, like few sites uh, where people would work and uh, live. Uh, although in the whole island, there are no buildings that are from the actual camp uh, that survivors describe. These buildings were built later on and it was still a camp, but it wasn't within the scope of, of these histories. Uh, still, you can imagine this. You can imagine a lot of things when you go inside. You can hear stories of the amount of people interned there. Um, and when I was there, I think Island Persin is a very difficult place to go to because actually it's um, natural um, like reservat. So it's like protected by UNESCO. It has extinct birds and animals. And it's like this beautiful island with... Um, hundreds of, you know, beautiful sceneries to see, like plants, overgrown nature, birds that you would never actually see uh, anywhere else. Um, so when you go there, it's like this mix of, you know, this beauty and sublime and like this death and trauma. And it's like quite perplexing because you can't, like, even if you go there and you know the history, it's quite hard to imagine that these two things could exist in the same space and that like they, they're coexisting and like inhabiting the same piece of land. So when I went first, I think I was there for a very brief like period of time, maybe for two or three hours. And I was very engaged with taking as many photographs as I can. So I couldn't actually feel the place that much. And also I was with someone who was like explaining to me everything. And it was so much to, to handle, like a piece of information. Then in the other camp in Lovech, there is one building there 
but it's like the construction of the building actually. And it was a building used for the crushing of the stones and loading of the stones onto the rails of the train, which are just underneath the camp. So actually there isn't like the sheds where the inmates lived. They were actually made of some wood or some material, which is not, you know, it, it won't actually exist for long on purpose. So again, you can't really feel the place that much. And it's hard to imagine that the, this quarry was so digged by these people. But I think that what happened with me was that when I was doing this research and actually talking to the survivors and like becoming much closer to this information and not being just an outsider looking at history and reading about it, that's when something similar to what you just described started to happen with me. Because I think it's, it's like in the museum, when you go, you receive the information, the story, you get an overall view and you get like very, you know, personal and private experiences. So you get all of this like to take on and to somehow contextualize the space. So I didn't have that. And no one would actually have it when they go to these camps because it, like nothing of this kind of exists. But I think because of the research, I kind of grasped upon this. So when I went, actually, the, the last time I went to the camp was, I think, uh, a year in 2019 or no. It was 2020, I think, actually. Yeah, it was like the first week of January. I went to the camp and it was like winter and half of the camp was in snow. The other part wasn't because it's like in a valley. And just before I actually went to the camp, I met with this same survivor I just talked about. Um, but I didn't interview him. I just wanted to see him and spend some time with him. And, um, and I went to the camp after on the same day. And when I arrived to the camp, because it's been now so many years after I've started and because I didn't go with the intention of making something. Of course, I photographed it, but I photographed it more to document it. So when I went to the camp, I literally got off the car and just went on my knees. Like I couldn't breathe. I felt like probably I was having a panic attack, to be honest, because I felt like I can't breathe and everything feels too much. I can't like feel, I don't feel okay being here, being in this place because I knew so much about it that I, it's almost like my, memories and histories were present. They, they were somehow visible to me, although the place was unchanged or maybe slightly changed from like, you know, the climate or weather or whatever. So I just stayed on my knees and I don't know, smoked five cigarettes before I was able to stand up and actually think about where should I photograph it from or what should I do? Like, because I wanted to do something with me being there because it's quite far from where I'm originally from. Wow. Yes, thanks so much for sharing all this. I think, uh, yeah, we know that like this uh, information is not so widely known and I think it's very unique to, to kind of enter your uh, years long research. Uh, but yeah, of course, like you, you are not um, only a researcher, but you're uh, most importantly an artist. So you kind of take all this information and... Um, yeah, show it in a artistic form. So I'm uh, I'm curious because like in your work, you of course uh, use a lot of historical materials. You use archives. Uh, you work with photography, uh, video, but also yeah, found objects. So I'm curious, like, how do you distinguish the work of like a historian and the work of an artist? I think that one benefit that artists have when working with history is the, is the fact that you can actually play around with information 
and you can be ambiguous or obscure or abstract, you know. And I think historians would, can never afford to do anything like that because they need to try to be objective and truthful. They need to work with hard information and information coming from archives. And I think that's specifically in the case of Bulgaria because there was uh, like about one, more than 100,000 files were destroyed from the archives uh, just after the fall of communism. So it's actually very difficult for historians to write about this or to be objective or to actually know that what they're writing is truthful because it's based on an archive, but the archive was destroyed. So what is actually missing out? And I think that is where the artists can come because it's almost like I can work with fragments and I can create something out of this fragmented information and history when historians would really struggle to do something like that and to actually call it history at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's like something great, which art forced me to do and why I would never be a historian uh, because art is so much more, you know, open to interpretation or like, it's almost like this material, like clay that you could mold to anything. And you could work with so many different fragments of information to narrate still a history or a story or an account um, that I've, for example, encountered. Um, so I think that history, of course, gives me the context of what I do, but I also can put my imagination in the things that I do and create. For example, I think recently I've been interested in creating things that could be classified somehow as like pseudo-scientific. So I would somehow intervene within a museum collection or I would somehow pretend to be a scientist by holding rocks in different ways and like creating this kind of a persona, see if there is a specific way to hold a rock to understand it. Um, or I would uh, insert, again, like different stones or rocks or rubbish within a collection uh, in a museum and pretend that they're all historical artifacts that one needs to like observe close and look at. And historians can't do anything like that, right? Like they can't imagine things or use something from 2020 and claim that because it's found on this place, it's linked to the history of this place because I could, you know, use philosophy or create some kind of a theory of my own that could somehow back up what I'm doing. <laughs> I really like this, uh, this video work with the stones. It felt a lot like OCD, you know, like putting the stones in the perfect place. I like that you kind of uh, made it to the extreme kind of this precision. <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, as, as you were saying at the beginning, actually this whole uh, research started in a place which is not Bulgaria, right? You, you live uh, in the UK and you also got your education there. So I'm curious how... What was the reception on your project, on your interest uh, within your, yeah, your, your studies? How did like your teachers and the other students react to the work you're doing? People would be really shocked when they see the work uh, and they would be very, you know, overwhelmed or they would feel like this is so traumatic. And I think it would be interesting for them. Like it has been interested, interesting, whether for my uh, like lecturers or peers and after that for people that would come to my shows and look at the work of course they would all have some kind of a knowledge of the holocaust for example or the gulag camps and they would be able to like some somehow contextualize the work within a wider scope and understand it i think that what i've struggled with though is to somehow explain that this work is actually 
important because this is not something spoken about in general in Bulgaria, like by historians or in schools or what for artists. So it's not, so for me, the work has never been just to document something and pass on and go to the next thing. It's been more about like doing this work because otherwise it could be somehow evaporated from time. It could be forgotten or erased and it's being forgotten and it's being erased because that's what time does best anyways. Uh, And I think it's the help of people that you could actually have some remembrance or memory, which is also why, like how your cultural or like, you know, um, state identity is created by all of the things that you would um, like be given to us information. So I think the work was uh, accepted uh, like, in in a good way or like with interest towards it uh, when I was doing it and when I'm still doing it, I would get into very interesting conversations um, in the UK. Also, for example, it was very interesting in Berlin when this work was shown because I think there is so much more to dig there within specific, like, you know, the specific experience of trauma. There was um, a woman who came to an artist talk I had who was uh, probably in her 60s or 70s uh, and she, she like, I don't even know how she understood about my work or the gallery or anything, but she stood and listened. And I feel like, although I didn't speak to her that much, it was almost like, you know, this silent understanding of what I'm trying to communicate. And because the, the space where EP had uh, their, uh, like the, the exhibition was like this beautiful, like small space with uh, a floor that was um, in the basement. So in order to go, to the basement, you need to go down a wooden ladder. Uh, it wasn't actually a staircase. So mm-hmm. this lady who was like, you know, extremely old and like had difficulty walking, we all helped her to go down because she really wants to go and see the film where you hear like the voices of the survivors. Um, so it was interesting. I feel like in Berlin, the work was understood definitely completely, you know, different than how it was understood in the UK. And then in Bulgaria, that's a completely like, you know, different field of understanding. I feel like in Bulgaria, it's, um, it's either people being impressed and like patting me on the shoulder and being very proud of someone doing this, or it's people telling me how I am anti-communist and Soros has paid me to do this project, uh, or, you know, like all of the conspiracy theories of why would someone do something like this being thrown, uh, or people often saying how I'm too young to do this. Like, who are you to do it? When were you born? Like, you simply can't have the authority to do something like this. And I think I value both of the points a lot because especially the negative points is very important for me. That speaks volumes about the work. It's even more louder than the work itself because it speaks so much about wanting to forget and not wanting to remember and not wanting to, you know, keep memory or remembrance and preferring to ignore it as it was ignored in the past. Yeah, yeah, totally. Of course, definitely. It's great that you just continue and take on this critique as like a kind of power to to continue. Yeah, maybe it would be would be nice to actually speak uh, now about some of your works uh, specifically. Uh, so your your uh, recent uh, work uh, titled Operation Thunder was actually shown in the Sofia History Museum uh, last year in 2020. Actually, the show is still going, uh, funny enough, because of like the lockdowns and everything. I think it's still open for some time now. 
nice. I don't know until when. It had to close last year, but all the museums and galleries closed as well for like some weeks or a month. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the latest work I've done, which I started in like last year, I think about in the summer or maybe in spring, I, had, I started to have some ideas. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's linked as well to the history of trauma and the forced labor camps, but it looks more into the processes that take place before uh, you go into the camp, before one is interned. Uh, the work deals specifically with um, an operation led by state security, and the state security is actually the secret police or KGB, uh, as better known uh, like by the Western audiences. So the operation was called Thunder, uh, and it happened in 1958, um, and it was a mass arrest of young people uh, in Sofia or living around Sofia who were either wearing uh, skinny trousers, short skirts, duffel coats, uh, listened or danced to Western music, or had some kind of a hairstyle or just style that reminded somehow of the West. Um, so these people are mainly between 20 and 30 years old and were actually people from the new wave intelligentsia. They were studying in art schools, they were musicians, uh, dancers, writers, and so on. Or sometimes they were from families uh, who were previously interned in camps or seen as enemies of the people. Uh, this uh, specific operation was actually a reaction to the um, uh, uprising or revolution that took place in Hungary two years before uh, so in 1956, um, when the students uh, were uprising there. So I feel like, so this was somehow resonated across the whole Soviet bloc for the state security to be, you know, vigilant of what the young people could do and that they could too be influenced uh, in protesting somehow or expressing a different opinion towards the system, uh, which was, of course, happening, uh, whether it was through political jokes, uh, the way you wear your clothes, or wanting to exclude Russian language from the compulsory education, or somehow forming anti-governmental groups um, in like the universities, or having like meetings, or listening to, for example, rock and roll, or dancing to rock and roll. It was all seen as anti-governmental um, like activity. So these people were all arrested. Uh, in the beginning of 1959, uh, 1958 and were detained in the headquarters of the first um, like Department of State Security, which is in the kind of the center of uh, Sofia, uh, on a street called Moskovska, number five. Uh, that's also like, I think, relevant to the work because one of the pieces of the work is called like that as well. So the building uh, is still there, the same building. Uh, it's currently housing the National Archives. Uh, there is no plaque uh, signifying that this building was actually used through though, uh, like many years uh, for detain detention and internment, um, like imprisonment, I mean, uh, because they, so although it was an office building with offices of state security agents, uh, it, it also uh, held like um, a big, um, big basements, which were turned into cells. Uh, so the people would be arrested there and they would be uh, put into those cells and interrogated for some time, uh, kept for maybe for days, weeks, uh, or probably even months. And then from there, they would be sent to camps or prisons. But everyone that would be detained there would be someone who would perform somehow a political activity towards the state. So it, there won't be any criminal uh, criminals actually arrested or anyone that actually did some kind of a, you know, a crime uh, in the modern world of like the, the meaning of crime. Uh, uh, under the... Um 
photographs which you which I saw from the installation. Uh, so you you had some photographs of, of the people who got detained. Uh, it was written arrested for hooligan behavior and appearance. I thought it was quite striking. Absolutely, they they just used the word hooligan, and that was uh, the cla- like the classification of these people. Because before that, for example, they could classify them as enemies of the state because they were part of the king's, you know, army, or they were farmers, so they were part of the Bulgarian National Agrarian Union, or, for example, like with different terms. But because now these were young people uh, who were doing all these Western things uh, somehow, so they were the hooligans, actually, like the the majority of, like, whoever knew about this uh, operation or about this happening from society, they, they actually called it the hooligan um, action rather than Operation Thunder, as it's, like, uh, written in the archives. Because the, I, I work with, our, like, the actual case from, from this year, so I visited, like, the archives, which are only for the state security files, so you only read their things that were part of like the secret police uh, like database. Uh, so I looked at the case. It looks clean. The case is clean uh, because so much of it is missing. Like there is barely any information. And for example, there is an extensive collection of photographs of these people. Uh, but the documents following the photographs are much, much less than the number of people photographed. So there comes the question, you know, why would they actually document uh, why some people arrested and others not? Like, of course they have, but it's just like it's cleaned. So you can actually, when you look at uh, files and cases from the state security, you can notice how clean they are and how so much is missing. Like, even without knowing what you're looking at or what happened. Um, So yeah, these are photographs of people arrested, um, which I uh, suppose were taken in this very same building. From my observation, they were taken in two different offices. Uh, because you can see like the curtains and you can see the floor. You can see that it's not a cell, definitely. You know, it has like wallpapers with figurines and like a desk or a chair on the side. Um, so within these photographs and this work, one of the things that interests me is the gaze of the photographer that comes here and how the photographer is also the agent who is taking the photograph. And one of my findings was looking at these photographs and there are like dozens of them is that I found only two photographs in total in which the person looks at the camera. In every other photograph, the person photographed looks to the side, to, you know, somewhere else, but not directly gazing at the lens. Um, so I'm just really interested at this gaze and the gaze back as well and, and how the authority or agency of the photographer here is very different than if it's, you know, any, in any other case when photographs would be taken. Mm. And the work also entails uh, three um, uh, video um, installations. Could you tell a little more about those? Yeah, absolutely. So in this film called Moskowska Number no. 5, I actually, it's, it's a bit like a, a video essay where I have taken photographs of the building uh, from all its sites. And I have also uh, received the permission from uh, somebody um, to actually go inside of the building and photograph these basements. So you can see photographs of the inside and the outside. And what I've actually did was that I photographed this on on black and white 35 millimeter film. I developed the the photographs in uh, my bathroom in Bulgaria. And then in the developing process, when you finish the process, you need to wash the film. 
So I would wash the film for like 20 minutes and then I would actually wash it with warm water. Uh, and when you wash film with warm water, uh, you can scratch it and parts of the film starts to fall off. If you probably use boiling water, the whole film will actually peel. So I would wash the, the film with hot water and scratch it uh, randomly in random places and then scan the photographs like that, purposefully destroying them. Um, I would do that because I'm interested by something which um, uh, is like, which I've read about by Hito Stereo, who speaks about the poor image and how sometimes images are poor because of the lack of access or funding or historical information or denial of events. So I'm interested here to create these poor images, which are signifiers of the event, signifiers of the present of the event and how it's almost like I can never describe this event with photography because it's not even described with history. So I'm trying to imitate the state of this situation through the process of working. Um, in the essay that runs across, I speak about the building, the history of the building, the architect, uh, the, the history which I just explained. And I also speak about the gaze, which I just spoke about um, as well, and how I've seen these two photographs. And then I go into speaking about the poor image uh, and I end with speaking about, or actually wondering uh, whether memories have, uh, whether buildings have memory and how memory is activated. Whether someone needs to go inside to activate memory or they just need to be outside. And is the presence of a person uh, the, the thing that actually makes memory exist or activates it? Um, so, I, so, so the film is basically like this kind of a study, but also like questioning of the space, which is in the center of Bulgaria, um, and which is seen by hundreds of people daily, they pass through and they don't have like an idea, especially if they're young, they don't have a single clue what this building was used for. That's actually the case in a lot of uh, cities, I think, even here in Berlin. I still don't know where it's like the East and the West because everything is kind of, yeah, just like taken over and gentrified. Uh, and yeah, even living... Um, Sorry that now I'm speaking about the Western countries, but I just had to think of, of course, also about Amsterdam, how like the colonial past is so ingrained into the architecture. But only if you actually take a tour with someone showing you this was the building for that and this was the building used for that, you realize. Otherwise, you just pass every day next to this infrastructure and never know what actually yeah, happened there not so long ago. I mean, in case of... Uh, Bulgaria. Oh, yeah, and if you can tell a bit about the, um, the because you had three video installations, right? And we already spoke about uh, the ones with the ar archival objects. Yeah, absolutely. So the one we spoke about where I use this found objects. Um, so basically I visited this museum, which is Sofia History Museum. Um, I think I went there two times and I spent a lot of time looking at the museum and taking photographs of like how the museum uses um, its collection, how is the collection displayed, what are the different like places where or spaces which are inhabited by their artifacts. And then I started to think about this and I just came up with this idea of imitating the way a uh, glass cabinet looks like. So I created uh, like I literally found the same type of paints, uh, the same color that the wood was uh, in the cabinets. Um, and I created like uh, like these uh, small 
uh, numbers that are identical with the same font that the museum used. Uh, and I made it like these boxes, which are similar to the boxes that they have used to display artifacts from the second century of like Roman, um, like artifacts found on the territory of Sofia. So I did everything to make it look as close as possible to the actual museum's collection. So that when you watch this video and you've actually see around all of these same cabinets, you can think that this is actually shot in the museum and that this is actually, you know, real artifacts and a real curator actually dealing with these objects. Uh, because I, I think I'm also interested in the um, specific quality of photography to trick the viewer and to manipulate reality. So I basically went around this building that I just spoke about on Moskovska 5 and I collected stones and rocks and whatever I found nearby for like uh, maybe a few weeks I would return and go. It was actually quite difficult to collect stones from there because during that same time I was doing this, there were the protests happening against the government uh, passing very near, maybe, I don't know, 50 meters away uh, from this building. Uh, they would like the, the protest uh, crowds would pass. So it was a place uh, uh, full of uh, policemen everywhere. So it was quite difficult to go and fill my uh, pockets with stones because I'm really near to a protest and I could be, you know, considered as someone who wants to go to the protest and throw stones, basically, which, you know, not very uncommon. Um, so I would have to go in different hours of the day with multiple different friends and, you know, stop nearby. Uh, thankfully, there is a coffee shop on one side of the building. So I uh, managed to like drink a few coffees there uh, whilst I'm like kneeling down and collecting whatever I find because the coffee shop is literally by the building. Like the tables, the outdoor tables are next to the, the walls of the building. Um, and then I just turned into this curator by using just a pair of white gloves that you would use in an exhibition space. Uh, and I very, you know, as you very good described, like an OCD, uh, like notion of moving these objects and rethinking whether that's the right placement or it's a wrong one and making everything as straight and perfect as it is. Uh, so it's almost like you see the process of something being curated within this glass vitrine. Mm. And um, the other work which you mentioned uh, it's uh, created with uh, uh, archival footage from the secret police archives. So I managed to get quotes on some of their training films, which are very funny. They're very humorous. Like you'd never believe that's a training film because there is a narrator on top who asks you questions as a viewer and tells you, did this man uh, did uh, right or wrong? And then it gives you like a post to answer if you are to watch this film in a training setup, I guess. Um, and I pieced up uh, parts of different films. For example, one film would be about the day of a policeman, uh, actually a militia man, but that's not a common word outside of, uh, you know, the um, uh, Eastern Europe. So the policeman and what he does, how he wakes up, plays the radio, makes a coffee, saves the world, and it's like his daily life on the streets, meeting people and helping them and always, you know, assisting or whenever someone, for example, there is a scene of someone from the West uh, in like a fancy car, drinking Coke with one hand, stops and asks for directions. And the policeman should be very cold and not give like much help or engage in a conversation. Um, so it's really, really funny films. Uh, there is another one which is about how to set up spying equipment. Uh, so when you're spying someone, for example, in their office, how to mount a camera on the wall, a secret camera, 
have take fingerprints or you know like uh, research if some someone has entered and visited the office in weekends so they're doing something illegal there that's not related to their actual job um and there is another film which i used which is about um like these voluntary troops uh which existed in every like city, actually every neighborhood where people would volunteer to keep order. So they would actually have, they wouldn't have like weapons or anything or even like education or a rank, but they would go around and um, check if someone is making loud noises, if someone is like, you know, saying political jokes or, you know, doing something that's outside of the norm and disturbing the peace in the neighborhood. Uh, so it's like a training film of these people doing that and how they would arrest someone and like fight someone or how they would go and like destroy a party because people are like singing and playing a guitar outdoors since like past 10 p.m. Um, so like very, again, humorous films to watch from the perspective of someone in, in my age, uh, in this uh, time. Uh, very sad that they're actually real and were used for training. Um, so I made like this very experimental film where you see fractions, which I've somehow piece together to retell the story of these people who were arrested, actually, uh, and who, you know, um, had this unfortunate uh, destiny. Uh, so I've also used some sound for one of the films, but I've disrupted it and destroyed it and made it into this kind of, um, you know, space sounds of like shuttles or something, you know, very, very unusual happening that makes you feel like the film is totally unreal. Like, you know, it's not composed of real life scenes that are actually used for training of agents. <laughs> quite fascinating you also uh, kind of manipulated uh, your material for your other long-term work uh, Balkan Hours and then also Balkan Mine like the, the visual is characteristically red so I would like to speak a little bit about that long process which we also spoke about at the beginning this is actually how your interest in uh, political violence and trauma started. And this is kind of uh, the long-term result of it. So if we could uh, speak uh, also about that work a bit. So this work, I, I think the beginning of our conversation actually describes this work or describes the processes of coming to this work, not actually the work. But I visited these uh, various camps and spaces used for torture or internment across Bulgaria and I took these beautiful photographs on a medium format camera. Um, I was very disappointed because the photographs were beautiful simply. They were these vast landscapes of the countryside and mountains and rivers behind. Very rarely you would actually see a building um, because as I said, only two camps have some derailed buildings uh, on their sites. Uh, so for me, it was very like this disheartening and struggling to work with these images because they didn't speak at all about what I was trying to say. Um, and I, I think I actually mentioned to you in our conversations before about how this work was actually accepted the first time it was exhibited, how a viewer approached me. And so this work was also exhi uh, exhibited in London for the first time, but it, was, it looked different. It looked as it was shot. It wasn't altered. So a viewer approached me and asked me where these places because they want to go on a holiday there and that uh and that struck me because they were right i mean i have showed these beautiful photographs for example of the danube river you know so you see like this water and like the island behind and it's almost like a, a paradise photograph in a way um if you don't read anything about it 
So for me, I, I just felt like these photographs are not doing their, their purpose. They're not capable of communicating anything. So when I was actually shooting them, I, for some reason, had some slight film, no idea why, and I was uh, scanning it. Uh, and when I scanned it, I mistakenly left the settings of the previous film, which was just normal film, negative one, um, on, on the scanner program. So when the images start to come out after I scanned them, they were all coming red and black because they were with a setting for a negative, but they were actually a positive. So I saved one and then changed the settings, continued scanning. I ended up printing this one image, which is actually now in my room uh, on one of the walls. Um, and this image, I, I know that when I printed it, I really liked it, but I didn't know why I didn't like this was still when the work wasn't exhibited it was still in the process of the making and I was so obsessed with making more like going and photographing more before it all you know uh, escapes from me so I had this image on my wall for a year I just liked it didn't know why I didn't know what I'm doing and then I realized that this was actually the way forward I just had to do all of them as if they were all slide film because the red was obliterating this beauty and you were no longer seeing these colors or, you know, the glory of nature, or whatever you were seeing something that instinctively makes you feel uneasy because of like these high contrasted images that give you like kind of a, a different perspective on, on the photographs and remind you, they could remind you as well of like infrared cameras or like other things which are very different from, you know, media format landscape photography, which was totally not what I was going for. Um, so I started like this. I think that I, I love mistakes. I think mistakes are more helpful than actually succeeding in something because you can find so many, you know, things that you would never end up doing by doing a mistake. Uh, and your flaws are actually more worth analyzing than your success, or at least in my own practice, that happens to be the case. So I don't like, so I think that I always try to, um, you know, do something wrong <laughs> or enjoy doing something wrong. So, um, so it started like that by altering these images and they were now ready to actually communicate because after they were seen in this like shape and form, they were actually understood even if someone would just read the sentence uh, out of my statements and look at the images, they would know what they're seeing or they would actually be mesmerized by the images, but not positively. It would be almost like they would see some kind of a violence within the, 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 the colors that would be used. Um, and the same happened with the film, which is called Back on Mine. And the film was done later because when I was doing the photographs, I was also shooting um, with like another camera and also taking like videos of these spaces. The videos were as boring as the photographs. There was nothing happening. It was complete silence or you could hear some birds or water. Uh, there is no movement, no, no action, maybe some winds blowing through the trees. So I started to work with these videos and started to like take fragments out of them, but those take fragments from the recordings of the uh, interviews I've taken with the survivors. And I started to mix them up and I also, at that point, which was, I think, again, uh, it was 2019, so pretty recent when I finished this work, I was um, actually becoming to realize that this whole project was also about me. I was a part of this project as much as the survivors and places were. I think that before that, I tried to extract myself, to be objective, to be a historian or like believe in this kind of a, you know, notion that's absolutely impossible. When you create something, you're always a part of it anyways. So I decided to also include me in the film 
on purpose. And because when I was doing the research and the interviews, I would get very overwhelmed and, you know, um, feel very disturbed. So I would record myself sometimes just sharing whatever I've experienced in this day to my phone, to the recorder in my phone. So I started to drag sentences out of some of these recordings and include them in the films, in the film, but also take like random sounds that were recorded in these spaces. Or for example, um, there's one sound running through the, the whole film almost, which is of like um, a church uh, memorial singing. So it's actually a, a recording of a memorial day on the camp in Lovic, uh, where like on the memorial day, there would be like priests singing like a, a specific memorial song for like the, the souls of these people that have been deceased there. So I record this sound. So this is going through the, the whole film, uh, very quiet. And then you hear like these layers and layers of sound. Um, and the point, of course, is that you can never hear everything and you can never understand everything. And even if you know Bulgarian, it's still impossible because the subtitles run on top of each other. You hear a translation of one sentence, a translation of another piece of uh, sound. Um, and I think I'm just interested in this, like both the fragmentation within memory and the fragmentation that I could also create to signify this, how traumatic memory is fragmented. Anyways, when you experience something traumatic, you never remember it as a whole event. Um, and also this traumatic memory within society in Bulgaria is fragmented as well, like because it's not, you know, maintained or preserved somehow. So I was trying to also kind of signify this through this process of layering things and not allowing for the viewer to actually understand everything. Yeah, there's just uh, one more thing I would like to uh, discuss. We are almost like uh, at the end of uh, our conversation. Uh, since you are a, a lecturer, a teacher yourself, uh, you teach uh, photography, a photography course at the University of Arts in London. And you're also involved into various photographic platforms where you actually think through uh, yeah, different methods of uh, teaching. Yeah, I would like to speak about the educational part in post-Soviet countries. How do you, uh, what do you think about the way history uh, is presented uh, to us? Uh, what, what is kind of uh, being talked about and what is not being talked and how does it kind of uh, yeah, influence also uh, the way people kind of deal with the everyday? I think that history in Eastern Europe is very um, un unsettled still. Like there is no, especially in Bulgaria, still an official narrative about what actually happened in the past. So it's pretty hard to put this into words and within history books uh, for young people. I feel like uh, young people are definitely very engaged politically at the moment. Uh, in the past like uh, years or the new generations are, for example, on the protests and they understand much more what is happening, meaning that they will soon also start to learn or be interested about the past because the past and the present can't be separated, especially in the case of Eastern Europe. In terms of what is taught in the schools, from my experience of going to school in Bulgaria, which was like a decade ago, I, I don't think that we studied much about communism. I mean, basically there was lessons in the school book, but we never actually happened to reach them. Like it would be always the last, you know, few pages or last chapters and you would never reach them because 
every like the, the the whole like subject or teacher would be occupied with finalizing your grade, you know, or you know, learning something in order to have a test. So you would never pay that much attention. It won't be something that would be studied extensively. Um, so that was my experience of like being in Bulgaria and learning history. I learned a lot about uh, the golden age of Bulgaria and the kings, you know, but I didn't learn that much about communism. And even if I did learn something, it wasn't uh, described accessibly because there are many terms which for me are very much part of my work, but they aren't like ordinary words, you know, their terminology, for example, nationalization or illustration or collectivization and like all these words, which to someone who is 16 wouldn't mean anything. Like if you even if you take the meaning out of a dictionary, I think if you describe it with a story, though, it would be actually understood. Um, and one thing which I'm very happy about, and I think I could actually classify it as probably one of my biggest like achievements, uh, is the fact that uh, like this a film of mine, which is actually a documentary film, so it's like a survivor who describes actually this story, which I just said to you about um, like the camp in Wovich, but he also narrates other things. Uh, but it's literally him talking about memories within the landscape of the camp. So he points to things behind and so on. Um, so this film was actually included in the history book uh, for 10th grade uh, in Bulgaria, uh, I think a year ago. And it's also included in another uh, book, which is on, I think... Um, something to do with uh, civil uh, education. I can't remember the, like I can't translate the name of the unit, but it's like civil education and position or something within those lines uh, in English. Uh, so I'm really, I think, happy because uh, it's included in the digital um, like school books. And especially now during COVID, the uh, like students are extensively using them. Um, and it's, it's great because they've included actually, there is a whole... Um, lesson about the camps and they although it's quite brief they still describe the camps and they actually describe the camps within the scope of political violence rather than just uh, narrating where it was and how big it was um, and having this person a real survivor within the lesson to actually describe the experience and to this, to, to to see you know the embodiment of this trauma and how he was really young he was 17 when he was interned for example and he speaks about that I think it's quite powerful and I really hope that it reaches people, like that the students would actually watch it or the teacher would actually show it, which I suppose is how education has turned nowadays because, you know, they can use uh, digital resources or show films. When, when I was a student, that was not the case at all. Yeah, it's amazing that you can actually uh, use an artistic inquiry, like uh, artwork in an educational context. <laughs> Yeah, I think this uh, is a good maybe a place to round it up slowly. Um, for uh, the very uh, end, I would like to ask about your favorite Bulgarian food, since it's kitchen conversations and we have to finalize uh, by talking about uh, tastes and uh, home. This is a really difficult question because I have a very special relationship with food. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's hard to actually pick one, but I actually thought about this question. Uh, you know, probably this was the most trickiest one from all. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I would actually say two, two things, which I just eat in a combination. So I count them as one meal. 
Uh, one of them is actually a real food, a real like recipe, which you can Google and find. The other one, I don't think it's real. I think my mom just made it up. Uh, so basically, because when I was a child, I didn't actually like, you know, eat that much. Like I was very picky on my food. So I think she would just come up with some recipes that would be very basic and I would accept them. Um, so this is just uh, like it's, she would call it uh, potatoes with lovage. And lovage is uh, like this uh, herb that you normally, I think, would put when you cook uh, fish or meat. Uh, so it's literally potatoes with this herb with red pepper on oven. That's it. And some oil and nothing else. And you would eat that or I would eat that in combination with tarator, which is a Bulgarian actual meal that you can find within like restaurants. And tarator mm-hmm. is actually a really weird one for the West because it's actually a yogurt soup. So it's like uh, yogurt. Cold, cold, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's like yogurt with water, which becomes ayran in essence, if that like gives some idea. So it's yogurt, water, garlic, and cucumber and dew. And that's mixed together to like a liquid form. Uh, you always eat it cold, uh, really nice in the summer. And it's like, I really love this. You could eat it with all kinds of other meals, but it's almost like, um, like uh, something that you would have instead of a salad, for example. So if you have a salad, you can have that and then you can have your uh, main meal. But um, yeah, I think that's my answer, I guess. I once ate this soup also because we have something similar in Poland. I'm I'm not sure if it's Polish or just like acquired. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting taste, like especially because it's cold and it's actually really cold, right? It, uh, it's supposed to be a kind of refreshing. I had to get used to it, but yeah, it's amazing. It's delicious. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Kresimira, for uh, the conversation and especially for sharing your uh, knowledge on yeah history, which uh, is not so common to a lot of us. And uh, I will put all the links to your works uh, in the show notes so people uh, can check it out. Thank you as well for the invitation. It's uh, been great to speak to you. Thank you. You were listening to Kitchen Conversations. Please see the show notes for all the references made during our talk. If you like this episode, you can now support it at patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. Till next time.